Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Before we begin this week's episode, here's a message about our partner, Global Witness. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Professor Carrie Norgard to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Carrie is Associate Professor of Sociology and Environmental Studies at the University of Oregon. She's best known for her research into climate change denial and the politics of global warming. Carrie's research is currently focused on two main areas, work on the social organization of denial, especially regarding climate change, and environmental justice and climate work with the Karuk tribe on the Klamath River in California. Thank you very much, Carrie, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you for having me. It's um, looking forward. Absolutely. Now, can you tell me a little bit uh, about your background uh, and introduce, I suppose, yourself, yourself a little bit uh, to, to, to the listeners and, and what your current research and work focuses, Carrie? Sure. Um, I'm a sociologist. I'm professor of sociology at University of Oregon. I have affiliation in environmental studies and now with a new program we have here, Indigenous Race and Ethnic Studies. And I have been, I'm non-native, I'm white, I grew up in uh, California, kind of raised by uh, people who had strong connections to the natural world and kind of that classic Western environmentalism tradition, (laughs) and spent my, you know, the last 20 or more years of my life thinking a lot about gender and race and privilege and how those dimensions of my life and those dimensions of people's lives uh, shape how we think about uh, the environmental movement, how we experience environmental problems, you know, what gets talked about as environmental justice and the need for environmental justice, which is so evident now. I also have spent a good chunk of my time thinking about why and how it is so difficult for, for all of us, perhaps, but privileged people in particular to kind of come to terms with the world that we live in. And, you know, you and I are talking now in the midst of um, this coronavirus pandemic, which is, of course, uh, particularly um, egregiously handled at the moment in the United States. And so I'm, I'm continuing to do a bunch of work. I've been working for about 15 years with the Kaduk tribe. Um, I continue to be thinking about you know, environmental justice in different ways there. But I've also been thinking a lot about uh, denial and the justice dimensions that are becoming visible in a way, especially perhaps in the United States in the midst of this pandemic. So yes. 
um, yeah. a variety of things. Very interesting, very interesting. And and uh, we'll come on to, the, to that in a moment. I, I just usually like to set the scene a little bit. Uh, we, we face uh, so many, I guess, interlocking environmental, social, economic challenges right now. But what in particular is on your mind at the moment? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've all had here in Oregon, quite a bit of time to be uh, um, sheltering in place, as they say. And um, I think that's been a reflective period for me. I just finished uh, uh, my second book. I just finished a major climate adaptation plan with the Cudduck tribe. So there's been a, you know, a little bit less uh, intensity to some of my more explicit research projects. And it it's, I've been definitely thinking a lot about, um, as I know many people are these days, kind of what's visible and what's becoming visible about our society in light of the pandemic. Um, you know, my work has been on climate change for a long time, you know, definitely thinking about uh, racial inequality for a long time. But it, I definitely noticed that these things are more visible. But that's not a, I wouldn't say it's a fully formed, uh, I haven't done any publishing on that yet or anything. Yes, yes, absolutely. Now, I mean, you you spent quite quite some time, uh, as you say, thinking, but exploring, researching uh, this question of climate denialism, uh, what, what, however you might, might uh, frame that, uh, and with your book as well, Living in Denial. Can you maybe just give a brief overview of that book and uh, your work there? Yeah, thank you. So, that book project grew out of my uh, dissertation work. I'm third generation Norwegian American and had the privilege of living in Norway as a as a teenager, and it very profoundly affected my life um, because it felt like in Norway so many things were possible that weren't possible in the United States. You know, the development of the welfare state, uh, all these things, and um, the extent of sort of ethic around um, environmentalism and humanitarianism that was very hopeful to me. So I ended up, as I became interested in thinking about um, the difficult questions of our world, in this case, particularly climate change, I ended up deciding to set that ethnography in Norway. And really it grew out of, you know, scientists in the natural sciences and the atmospheric sciences have been you know, working on climate change and really coming from the premise that if people had information, if people only knew what was going on, we would respond. And I think so much of our society really operates from that premise. And of course, information is a prerequisite, I think, but to whatever it is, whether it's climate change or racial injustice, uh, we need to know the information. But information alone isn't necessarily going to lead to action, especially when the um, challenges are really large and when there's not really apparent um, way to move forward. So my work has been about denial, which is um, as a sociologist, it's about the interface between maybe psychological aspects of that, but also how we do it culturally and how it's a function of um, our social system as well. And so it's not just that we need information, but we really have a capacity to ignore, collectively ignore, really large problems. Yeah, it's very interesting because that, that was written how long ago? Uh, 10, 15 years ago? And, and probably researched before that. And we've only seen uh, exacerbation, particularly in the Anglosphere of America, uh, 
particularly, but also, I guess, Australia to some extent and Britain to some extent as well, this polarization and so forth. And as you say, this, this, this kind of information deficit model, if only people had the information. And yet now we, we do see that uh, some of the trends suggest that, that people are more aware and even in America and, and more concerned about, about uh, climate change and, and, and so forth. Do you think that it, it's changed some of the underlying factors that you identified? I mean, obviously, it's a series of things interlocking together. So there, there, there are many layers, the social, the political and so forth. But I'm just wondering what, what, what your sense of the temperature is at the moment in terms of climate denialism, maybe particularly in the States. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that um, I think it's changing very rapidly all the time. And I think that, you know, there's a lot more conversation about denial. When I first when I first was my book was delayed in publication in part because U.S. presses were like, not that interested and which I think is itself a function of, you know, the times. And although that book came out in 2011, in the last three years, I've received more, you know, media and people interested in it than initially. And so I think that there is an increasing awareness of our capacity for denial and um, not just, you know, in the media, but really collectively. And I think that's a good thing, but I think what we need is to, you know, we often think of denial really in psychological terms, especially in the United States, we really have this culture of individualism and that what we need to do is change individual attitudes. But one of the things that that I'm doing as a sociologist is talking about how whatever individual capacities, whatever individual emotions, uh, such as fear or a sense of helplessness that might cause people to not wanna look at something, are very much collectively shaped. Um, they very much have to do with, you know, the cultural discourse, political leadership. So, and you can see that. You can see that it makes sense that, you know, if if you if there's a cultural context where you can't talk about things that are disturbing, it's going to be harder to figure out what to do. If we have a collective, you know, right now and for a long time, we really haven't had a very sophisticated discourse about the future and climate change and what kinds of options we have. The conversation has pretty much been stalled out about whether it's happening or not, at least in the United States. And, and this is a big part of why we're not moving forward, I think, is that in the absence of really having a sense of what can be done is one of the things that makes people feel so hopeless. Right. And, and I guess it's, it's, I suppose, linked to uh, a question of thinking about the future as well. And because I guess out of, out of your research, there are implications for, for climate I, for, and science communication. I'd be quite interested in getting a sense of what you think, what one or a, a few uh, insights, insights on that. But at the same time, there, I mean, there has been criticism, I guess, of, of the environmental movement that it's, it's, it's been historically very negatively framed and very dystopian. And, and there certainly is a, a valid case that, which ties in what you're saying, a difficulty to envisage future scenarios and to imagine them and to create them. And uh, I, 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 I'm not sure who it was. Various people have been uh, said to have said the quote, it's easier to imagine the, the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism. But this idea of thinking about the future and imagining the future, I, I, it's not at the, I, 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 at the heart of your work. But I'm just curious, have you any reflections on that? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, um, you know, never been like a social movement organizer, but my understanding, you know, from folks that do that kind of work is the most important thing is to talk about what it is that needs to be done and, and try to get people to do that. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's a profound degree, I think, of political and social alienation, essentially. And by that, you know, I mean, a lack of, not only lack of faith in our political structure, but a lack of understanding of how it works. And, um, and, and similarly, as a sociologist, again, I mentioned sort of this US individualism, there's a lack of understanding that we even have a society that's impacting us and that shapes things. And yet, when you have social movements happening, as we do in the United States with the Black Lives Matter movement that has just really um, become very powerful and, and widespread, um, change in consciousness can happen very fast. And, you know, if people feel hopeful or feel more uh, collectively accountable or feel, um, you know, watch other people around them doing things. These are all factors that shape, um, you know, our sense of how we, where we put our energy and what's possible in the future. So we're very shaped by our society around us um, in terms of the choices that we make and how we see the world and what we think is possible. Um, but, you know, the lack of social capacity or, or, you know, awareness in imagining that fact. And then similarly, you know, the, the lack of a political sense of, of what can be done. You know, so we need to be talking all about the um, very specific things in different contexts that we can do to move forward beyond our current situation. Yeah, there has been some research as well, I understand, which links attitudes to, to global warming, to uh, other political values and so forth, and suggesting paradoxically that some of the, you know, the critics of, of, of climate change are actually quite knowledgeable uh, about it, but are actually so deeply embedded in their, their, their values that they, they, they're arguing the case, you know, because they have other values to do with uh, for example, interfering in uh, with the you know, so-called free markets and things like that, so that there, there right. are significant I suppose, blocks of values that color and determine. And is that something that you 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 pay attention to? Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. I I, um, I believe that work to be true. My work on denial, though, is not so much about the people who say it's not happening, but it's about you know the large majorities of people who. Yeah believe it's happening, but are kind of paralyzed and not doing anything, are sort of tiptoeing around the elephant in the room, yeah. um, as Atari's Rubeville would, would say. And how much of that do you think also is, you know, I, I guess it's called denial, but also maybe apathy as well, or I guess you talk about this, I suppose, you know, and, and, and in Britain and with Margaret Thatcher, and those sorts of things, society as well, that there's a kind of atomized individualistic and and then uh, quite a lot of focus i guess which isn't accidental perhaps in terms of individuals plastic bag consumption and things like that which kind of puts it very much on the shoulders of individuals when as you say these are also very strong socio and, and socio-political uh, issues yeah i mean i think that they all the way that we have so much discourse around um individual attitudes and individual um you know behaviors like like the plastic bags is a perfect example. And yet, you know, and I haven't um, looked up the research on this, but I've heard that, you know, with the pandemic, we see, we see profound changes in individual behavior, but exactly how much carbon emissions drop, it's not as significant as, you know, we would want it to be and, or as people might think it would be. 
So it's, it's exactly this focus on the individual that is, you know, it's like we need a, a equally sophisticated discourse around social change and how and what we can be doing collectively as we have had around the sort of individual behavior. And I think, you know, one of the gifts in the, of the Trump election here is understanding how, you know, we can have a whole nation of many, many people who believe that climate change is happening and want, and want something to be done. But if the U S you know, we have this political power at the top that is, pulling us out of the Paris agreements that is, un, you know, opening up um, extraction, that's opening up pipelines that, you know, thousands of people have worked very hard to stop. You know, these, of course, we've had some recent successes in those, um, but, you know, that political power is very important. It's not just a matter of whether or not I um, drive my car, you know, which is an important thing to think about it, but it is, the problem is at such a bigger scale. Yes. Now, wh- where do you see, I mean, it, it, it's such a complex topic and uh, multidimensional. Certainly people talk about, and we're, we're looking at, you know, reducing consumption and we're reducing behaviors like that. You unpack it a little bit and it's, you know, uh, we can focus on maybe the, the uh, what the great acceleration, the economic uh, period of economic growth or, or neoliberalism. But I guess you keep Peeling it all over the layers of, and and uh, and it's something you talk a bit about in, in your in your latest book is the relationship between nature and society, or uh, the kind of human uh, and nature dualism. And I know you've spent uh, a lot of time, and you're you're very involved in in the uh, work of the indigenous people. And um, I'm just wondering, you talk a little bit about maybe the kind of philosophical underpinnings of what we can learn maybe from the, uh, the, the way they think about that relationship and how that, that relationship between uh, individuals and, and, and nature, society and nature, actually impacts the way we treat nature and, and maybe, you know, the, some of the problems we have today. Nice, nice. I thought you were going one direction with that question. Um, so I'll uh, say something that came to my mind uh, first, and then I'll, I think, answer what I heard in the second part of the question. Um, when I first, you're as asking, I was thinking you were going to say sort of at what level does it make sense to take action? And um, I was thinking that, you know, for people like myself who are sort of middle class um, and working class as well, um, but maybe don't have a lot of capacity to donate large sums of money and sway elections or, you know, those kinds of things. I think there's a real power for us in working at a somewhat local level, but through institutions, um, through institutions like schools, uh, like churches, uh, like workplace, um, you know, like city level, um, state level too, you know, people who are working on carbon trade, uh, carbon taxes or things like that. But, um, but working at a level where it feels tangible and local at some level where you can have relationships with people, um, but that you are doing something collective so that your power is collective in a way, you know, whether it's through a union or, or something there. So, or a church, or, you know, so that's one thought in terms of, I think, a level where it can feel like people, there's a balance of people gaining some traction um, but it's also still grounded. Um, and then um, then sort of in terms of, I think, you know, thinking about my work with um, Indigenous peoples, um, I've had the really profound privilege to work with um, folks in the Kaduk tribe uh, since about 2003, I think, is when I first started working with my colleague, Ron Reed, 
who was a dipnet fisher is a dipnet fisherman and was at the time the cultural biologist for the Krupp tribe. And I think that you know I mentioned earlier that I think that especially with the pandemic, there's an awareness of denial. There's an awareness of of our sense of disconnection. Awareness that we even are disconnected. And I say we. A sort of a collective social we, and I think one of the things I've most been learning from um, my work with Ron and um, other wonderful people in the Kaduk Department of Natural Resources is what it can look like when some of that disconnection isn't there, <laughs> when people feel more deeply connected culturally, more deeply connected to the earth around them, and the level of um, political action that can come from that. And I can say more about that, but I also just spoke a lot. So I want to just give you, give you a moment. Yes, yes. So I packed a lot in there uh, in, in that question. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, continue on. That's, that's very interesting, Harry. Well, I think, I think that, um, you know, with climate change, um, with confronting things like structural racism, classism, you know, structural gender, systematic gender oppression, all of these things are, and certainly environmental problems, all of these things are um, carried out in a way because of a big disconnect with how the world really works. Um, So, you know, right now as a faculty member, Um, I am also a parent and there's all kinds of care work (laughs) that I do, which has always been invisible. But today's New York Times has a story about the gender gap in care work. All of a sudden, all these women are working at home and, and, and that care work becomes visible because it's not being done, you know, because the, because the home and the, you know, the, the workplace have sort of become the same and the, you know, the kids aren't in school or all these different kinds of reasons. So we have all of these sort of layers of invisibility of our social world, which capitalism, as you mentioned, you know, benefits from wealth is being generated from a particular way, but it doesn't, they kind of paralyze us too. that, that um, all of these, these gaps, it's a sense of alienation. What Marx would talk about is alienate. Well, Marx wouldn't talk about that particular definition of alienation. And And yet when we feel, when we are, when we recognize and feel supported by our connections in community, whether because we're held accountable by our other people in our family instead of having a culture of individualism, or when we feel deeply connected to um, the natural world around us because we can tell that it's essential for our survival, there's a way of being more empowered to act. And there's a lot of essentializing of indigenous peoples um, and I don't want to go down that path. I don't want to over glamorize anything in the lives of my kind of friends and colleagues. But what I see is that there's those relationships within family and their relationships with the natural world are more intact. And their level of standing up and responding and just kind of being all in um, when it comes to environmental and justice struggles looks really different than it does in more middle-class community where people are trying to stay safe and don't want to, you know, uh, rock the boat too much and that kind of thing. 
Well, when you talk about essentializing uh, indigenous communities or in, in indigenous peoples, well, what are you talking about there? Well, I think there's this idea that, you know, native peoples are not modern or that they are all, you know, there's this, in the U.S., we have this idea of this noble savage and, you know, that um, native people automatically stand up and, you know, fight for justice or whatever it is. And, you know, I don't want to fall into that trap um, and, you know, not sort of take people as who they are. And yet, you know, when I look at my friends and colleagues that are um, Karuk, I see them standing up. I see them um, acting in ways with a lot of integrity and using um, the... Yeah, and, and certainly uh, there's been more media attention, but also maybe more impact as well. I mean, it's not something that I... Uh, really looked at years ago, but uh, in terms of the oil pipelines and the confrontations with the, the oil and gas companies and things like that, um, can you talk maybe a little bit about that? Are they getting? Is, is there? There seems to be more attention. There, uh, maybe this was going on the whole time or not, but uh, it's uh, there seem to be some uh, important victories there with uh, some of the uh, pipelines. Although I'm not sure they've actually stopped working, but they've been legal, uh, you know, restrictions and so forth. But uh, it, quite impactful. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's important. I think that both things are happening. Um, Native peoples on this continent and around the world have been resisting um, colonialism and genocide continuously and from the get-go. So on the one hand, yes, uh, that's, it's not that these movements are new, but it does for sure been the case that they are getting more media attention. And I think that there's a cyclical aspect to indigenous movements, just like there are to anybody else's movements. And, you know, as in particular political moments, um, uh, you know, there's more movement activity. I mean, in the United States, we had um, the American Indian movement, um, you know, there was, um, you know, Vine Deloria's important book at the time, you know, bringing those movements more visibly into the public attention. You know, there's a lot of been uh, court cases uh, as well since the 70s that have really um, supported indigenous sovereignty, um, which has allowed for financial resources to indigenous communities. Um, You know, many, many people, you know, there's been a a shift in assimilation policies and things like that. So there's a variety of factors that are you know, allowed, I think, Native nations to build political momentum um, at the same time as there is, again, more awareness uh, within, you know, the dominant non-Native society about uh, Indigenous peoples and more and more people talking about that. So uh, here on University of Oregon campus about two weeks ago, or maybe a little bit more, uh, several very white supremacist statues um, were removed. <laughs> um, and, you know, Native folks were talking about why those statues had been offensive. And, you know, so those kinds of events are happening. And yes, for sure, I think they are both happening more. And there is more awareness of, of their ongoing, the fact that they've been happening for a long time. Yes, you were talking earlier, uh, we were talking about uh, uh, 
climate change, but also you were talking about uh, colonial issues, gender issues. There's, there are many interrelated, I guess, issues uh, and which, which you've been working on and researching and so forth. And maybe for what you might call the man in the street or so forth, they're, they're, see the, the issues. I mean, Black Lives Matter is, is clearly a, a, a growing and a tremendous uh, change in attitudes and, and, and tremendous momentum. But more generally, do, do, do you see the, the, a need to, to deal with these issues uh, all together in, in the way being, you know, uh, making clear the interconnections between them, you know, a kind of rapacious capitalism, which, you know, related also to gender roles and to co- co- colonialization, um, just in terms of creating change, because sometimes it can seem like there's just such an array of issues to be dealt with. And, and I guess for some, the, 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 this uh, global warming is, is an existential crisis, which is, you know, right uh, uh, upon us. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think it's important, depending on one's background, one's racial or gender class, you know, what part of the world or country one grows up in, you know, we understand different pieces of, or we can see different pieces of maybe how people's lives have been difficult, how our own family's lives have been difficult, or how our our ancestors or our parents or grandparents' lives have been difficult. And so we understand a piece about, say, social class or a piece around gender or peace around race, colonialism, but ultimately, I definitely see them as interconnected. And um, it's been very encouraging to see the um, ways, for example, that the Black Lives Matter movement has has really, I don't know the extent to which this is universally so, but certainly in our community here, been very acknowledging of indigenous dispossession. And um, there's been a lot of uh, allied movements. And if we look historically, you know, indigenous dispossession in the United States was fueled by slavery, which was fueled by global capitalism and the rise of things happening in Europe, um, the wealth that was being generated in Europe. And so the, the fact that slaves were working the land generated wealth for white landowners that allowed them to further um, inflict, you know, westward expansion on indigenous peoples. And similarly, you know, indigenous genocide was um, interrelated, you know, with slavery in a variety of ways. And in terms of the gender piece, there's a number of scholars that are coming forward. Uh, Leanne Simpson, her book, As We Have Always Done, she writes about, and many other people as well, write about how gender relations in indigenous communities have been much more fluid and looked really different than a lot of these ideas of how femininity is supposed to be is very much about enforcing a white uh, middle-class notion about, you know, connected to capitalism. And so I think it's not coincidental that we see so many young people um, who don't think of gender in the same way that my generation did. And we see um, so many at the same time that we're talking about colonialism and, and past genocide, we're talking about Black lives and police violence and white supremacy. I think these are interconnected, but different people may have different sense of the immediacy of their awareness of what those struggles are, dependent on their own family history and also on you know what hasn't hasn't been told or how that family history was told to them. Yeah, absolutely, very interesting. Just going back to I think you mentioned. Uh, 
fires. Uh, I, I know you've written about this recently. Um, I, I don't know whether this makes sense. Just to, to is it pretty uh, bold, but a uh, question to, to ask in terms of uh, what, what do you think we can learn from uh, indigenous people in terms of strategies to deal with some of the environmental problems that, that we're facing? Yeah, thank you. That's a wonderful question. I think it's incredibly relevant now. You know, the United States and other parts of the world as well, but was founded on this myth of, you know, native peoples being savages. And yet their systems, their ecological knowledge, their indigenous sciences, um, their social uh, structure was profoundly sophisticated. One could argue much more so even than what was coming in Europe, although it looked very different. And um, because they were able to, you know, manage this land in a way that produced profound ecological abundance for a very long time. And we can see what's happened since, you know, European arrival. And um, that's not that. Um, so if, if this founding myth, you know, has been that Native peoples have nothing to, you know, nothing of, of relevance, I think it is... A, a way of going against colonialism to acknowledge that, that indigenous peoples have a profound, have retained, even just by genocide and forced assimilation, all those things, um, profound pieces of, of important culture. There's a bit of a trickiness, I think, in terms of, you know, what makes sense going forward. I think it's important to follow particular communities' lead about what they want and what, you know, what, it's not, there's a, uh, one of my uh, colleagues, Kyle White, has an um, article titled something like um, Indigenous Knowledge is Not Just for All Humanity. But I will say that I've learned and see where not only is there incredible uh, science and, and knowledge of how to care for ecosystems and fire, the use of fire is a very specific example that is the forest where I live, the oak tree that I'm looking at right now as I speak to you was for a long time managed through fire. And then um, fire suppression was uh, thought to be best. And um, we now have really, really high fuel loads and very dangerous fires. So that's one example. And then, as I mentioned, you know, when we were talking kind of about a political strategy and ethics, I think that these ways of seeing ourselves not just as individuals, but as having responsibilities to other people in our family, responsibilities to our community, responsibilities to um, ecological systems and other species. I think that's a profound piece, you could say, of indigenous knowledge um, and cultural practice that is much more suitable for a sustainability agenda than a culture of individualism. Yes, very interesting. Yeah, yeah, very rich and, uh, and, and exciting as well, I, I guess, um, with the potential that, that seems to be getting a bit more attention, how uh, that translates into action over time. It remains to, to be seen. I, I read a recent piece uh, where, where you were talking about an uh, aspect of, of language and using language and talking about the environment. And I think it was focusing on uh, maybe a, a range of, of different expressions, but one of them was the Arabic word gerba. I'm not sure how you pronounce that, but which which is is a I think as you say a melancholic longing for a home. I'm just wondering maybe if you briefly talk about the uh, important languages when it comes to talking about the environment and any thoughts you have about that. 
Yeah, thank you. That particular piece, my um, one of my wonderful doctoral students, uh, Dr. Allison Ford, who's just launching her career at Sonoma State now uh, this fall, actually was the lead author on that piece. But I do think that, and it came out in um, a wonderful collection um, as well, but I do think that language matters. I'm not, you know, I'm not a linguist per se, but I think that language is how we, um, whether or not we have a word for something is part of how we can think of it and how we can conceptualize it. And it's a perfect example of the link between sort of individuals and culture, you know, that we collectively, words and whether they exist or not and what they mean, shape how we collectively see and what we collectively don't see or don't understand. And so um, one of the purposes of that uh, book was to try to have a, a lexicon of new words uh, for the world that we live in today in order to better uh, and more fluently talk about about the world that we live in now. Yes, yes, I've seen that. Uh, I didn't realize it was part of the, that uh, work, which is very interesting and very thought-provoking uh, with the, the range of new words and uh, which, we, which we need, which, which, as you say, highlight maybe uh, it's a lens to, to look at, uh, at things that we might not otherwise see. But what's, what's next for you, Gary? Um, well, I think that I am eager to get a little rest. <laughs> But uh, so for the next month or so, it's summer and I'm, you know, trying to uh, keep a sense of slow or still a reflection in the midst of our very fast changing world. And I just, I think when we think about sustainability and we think about time, it's important to understand um, and take care of ourselves and figure out sort of what sustainability, whether we inhabit it in our bodies and in our homes so that's been some of my recent pandemic um, experience. Um, but I also, you know, I have ongoing projects. I'm working on a project around um, tribal uses of forests in light of climate change um, with a colleague, Dr. Frank Lake. Um, I am sort of constantly thinking about different things. I'm teaching classes coming up this fall at the university on um, race, gender, and environment, and climate change, and environmental justice. So I'll continue learning and working uh, with my students in those capacities. Um, but I am also uh, yeah, at a sort of an inward focus of trying to catch up with myself in a certain sense. Well, I wish you the very best. Uh, it sounds like you have a very full plate. Um, and uh, I, I wish you the very best with your ongoing work. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, thank you very much for, uh, for your work. If you like what you heard today on the Sustainability Agenda, we think you'll enjoy Jason Hickel's powerful new book, Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World, which shows how we need to transform the dogmas of capitalism to forge a new system that is fit for the 21st century, available online and at all good bookstores. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.